At the dancer's head, tallest of them all, fiercely erect, showing them how, is Mr. Maharaj's sister, over 60 years old, but still the greatest dancer in the state. Miss Maharaj has seen the newcomer, but makes no acknowledgement. She is the mistress of the dance. Movement is all. When it's finished, they face each other. Mr. Maharaj's women, the sister, the American. What are you doing? A dance against the firebird. A preparatory dance to ward it off. The firebird. She thinks of Stravinsky of Lincoln Center. Miss Maharaj inclines her head. The bird which never sings, she says, whose nest is secret, whose malevolent wings brush women's bodies, and we burn. But surely there is no such bird. It's just an old wives' tale. Here, there are no old wives' tales. This is Jim Fallon, Director of Project Narrative at The Ohio State University, and I'd like to welcome you to the Project Narrative Podcast. In each episode, a narrative theorist selects a short narrative to read and discuss with me or another host. Today, I'll be talking with Aman Garcha, who has selected Salman Rushdie's short story, The Firebird's Nest, which was originally published in The New Yorker in 1997. In addition to discussing the story, Amin and I will get into some general issues about how authors and readers handle the issue of characters' choices. Amin Paul Garcher is Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Studies in the Ohio State English Department, and I'm happy to say that he has recently become a member of the core faculty in Project Narrative. Amin's scholarly expertise includes the 19th century British literature, the theory and history of the novel, and literary theory. He is the author of From Sketch to Novel, The Development of Victorian Fiction, from Cambridge University Press in 2009, as well as numerous essays and reviews about Victorian literature and culture. Ahmed's current project is about narrative and choice, and he's been publishing some of his thinking in journal articles. In 2020, he published a fascinating essay in Texas Studies in Literature and Language on the ecologies of choice in Trollope's The Fixed Period. He has a wonderful essay on Jane Austen's handling of choice forthcoming in the journal Novel. His title there is Emma's Choices, Economics and Modern Narratives of Decision-Making. Aman, is there anything you'd like our listeners to pay special attention to as you read Rushdie's story? Thanks, Jim. And that was great. There's a lot going on in Rushdie's story, so and I'll hopefully talk about things I'm not so focused on, as well as things I am focused on in terms of my own interests and, and scholarship. But one of the certainly things that, 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 that we're going to be interested in is to look at or think about as we go through the story, how Rushdie represents, or does, in this case, doesn't represent people trying to figure out what to do next, making choices, making decisions, et cetera. Right. Okay, good. So now, here's Amon Garcher reading The Firebird's Nest by Salman Rushdie. Now I am ready to tell how bodies are changed into different bodies. Ovid, Metamorphosis. It is a hot place, flat and sear. The rains have failed so often that now, they say instead, the drought succeeded. They are plainsmen, livestock farmers, but their cattle are deserting them. The cattle staggering migrate south and east in search of water and rattle as they walk. Their skulls, horn mileposts, line the route of their vain exodus. There is water to the west, but it is salt. Soon even these marshes will have given up the ghost. Tumbleweed blows across the leached gray flats. There are cracks big enough to swallow a man. An apt enough way for a farmer to die, to be eaten by his land. Women do not die in that way. Women catch fire and burn. Within living memory, a thick forest stood here. Mr. Maharaj tells his American bride as the limousine drives towards his palace. A rare breed of tiger lived in the forest, white as salt, wiry small. And songbirds, a dozen dozen varieties, their very nests were built of music. Half a century ago, his father riding through the forest would hum along with their areas, could hear the tigers joining in the choruses. But now his father is dead, the tigers are extinct, and the birds have all gone except one, which never sings a note and, in the absence of trees, makes its nest in a secret place that has not been revealed. 
the firebird, he whispers, and his bride, a child of a big city, a foreigner, no virgin, laughs at such exotic melodramatics, tossing her long, bright hair, which is yellow like a flame. There are no princes now. The government abolished them decades ago. The very idea of princes has become, in our modern country, a fiction, something from the time of feudalism, a fairy tale. Their titles, their privileges have been stripped from them. They have no power over us. In this place, the prince has become plain Mr. Maharaj. He's a complex man. His palace in the city has become a casino, but he heads a commission that seeks to extirpate the public corruption that is in the country's bane. In his youth, he was a mighty sportsman, but since his retirement, he has had no time for games. He heads an ecological institute studying and seeking remedies for the drought. But at his country's residence, at the great fortress palace to which his, this limousine is taking him, cascades of precious water flow ceaselessly for no other purpose than display. His library of ancient texts is the wonder of the province, yet he also controls the local satellite franchises and profits from every new dish. The details of his finances, like those of his many rumored romances, are obscure. Here is a quarry. The limousine halts. There are men with pickaxes and women bearing earth in metal bowls upon their heads. When they see Mr. Maharaj, they make gestures of respect. They genuflect. They bow. The American bride watching intuits that she has passed into a place in which that which was abolished is the truth, and it is the government far away in the capital that is the fiction in which nobody believes. Here, Mr. Maharaj is still the prince, and she his new princess. As though she had entered a fable, as though she were no more than words crawling along a dry page, or as though she were becoming that page itself, that surface on which her story would be written, and across which there blew a hot and merciless wind, turning her body to papyrus, her skin to parchment, her soul to paper. It is so hot, she shivers. It is no quarry, it is a reservoir. Farmers, driven from their land by drought, have been employed by Mr. Maharaj to dig this water hole against the day when the rains return. In this way, he can give them some employment, he tells his bride, and more than employment, hope. She shakes her head, seeing that this great hollow is already full, a bitter irony. Briny, brackish, no use to man or cow. The women in the reservoir of irony are dressed in the colors of fire. Only the foolish, blinded by language's conventions, think of fire as red or gold. Fire is blue at its melancholy room, green in its envious heart, and may burn white or even, in its greatest rages, black. Yesterday, the men with pickaxes tell Mr. Maharaj, a woman in a red and gold sari, a fool ignited in the amphitheater of the dry water hole. The men stood along the high rim of the reservoir watching her burn, shouldering arms in a kind of salute, recognizing in the wisdom of their manhood the inevitability of women's fate. The women, their women, screamed. When the women finished burning there, nothing was nothing there. Not a scrap of flesh, not a bone. She burned as paper burns, flying up to the sky and being blown into nothing by the wind. The combustibility of women is a source of resigned wonder to the men hereabouts. They just burn too easily. What's to be done about it? Turn your back and they're alight. Perhaps it is a difference between the sexes, the men say. Men are earth, solid, enduring, but the ladies are capricious, unstable. They're not long for this world. They go off in a puff of smoke without leaving so much as a note of explanation. And in this heat, if they should spend too long in the sun, we tell them to stay indoors, not to expose themselves to danger. But you know how women are. It is their fate, their nature. Even the demure ones have fiery hearts. Perhaps the demure ones most of all, Mr. Mirage murmurs to his wife in the limousine. She is a woman of modern outlook and does not like it, she tells him, when he speaks this way, herding her sex into these crude corrals, these easy generalizations, even in jest. He inclines his head in amused apology. A firebrand, he says. I see I must mend my ways. See that you do, she commands, and nestles comfortably under his arm. His gray beard brushes her brow. Gossip burns ahead of her. She is rich, as rich as the old obese Nazim, who was weighed in jewels on his birthdays and was so able to increase taxes simply by putting on weight. His subjects would quake as they saw his banquets, his mighty havas, his towering jellies, his kolfi, Himalayas, for they knew that endless avalanche of delicacies sliding down the Nizam's gullet meant that the food on their own tables would be sparse and plain, as he wept with exhausted repletion, so their children would weep with hunger. His gluttony would be their famine. Yes, filthy rich, 
The gossip sizzles. Her American father claims descent from the deposed royal family of an Eastern European state, and each year he flies the elite employees of his commercial empire by private aircraft to his lost kingdom, where by the banks of the River of Time itself, he stages a four-day golf tournament. And then laughing, contemptuous, godlike, fires the champion, destroys his life for the hubris of a spined glory, abandons him by the shore of Time's River, into whose into whose tumultuous, deadly waters the champion finally dives and is lost, like hope, like a ball. She is rich. She is a fertile land. She will bring suns and rain. No, she is poor, the gossip flashes. Her father hanged himself when she was born. Her mother was a whore. She also is a creature of wilderness and rocky ground. The drought is in her body, like a curse. She is barren and has come in the hope of stealing brown babies from their homes and nursing them from bottles, since her own breasts are dry. Mr. Maharaj has searched the world for its treasures and brought back a magic jewel whose light will change their lives. Mr. Maharaj has fallen into iniquity and brought despair into his palace, has succumbed to yellow-haired doom. So she's becoming a story that people tell and argue over. Traveling toward the palace, she too is aware of entering a story, a group of stories about women such as herself, fair and yellow, and the dark men they loved. She was warned by friends at home in her tall city. Do not go with him, they cautioned her. If you sleep with him, he will not respect you. He does not think of women like you as wives. Your otherness excites him, your freedom. He will break your heart. Though he calls her his bride, she is not his wife. So far, she feels no fear. A ruined gateway stands in the wilderness, an entrance to nowhere. A single tree, the last of all the local trees to fall, lies rotting beside it, the exposed roots grabbing at air like a dead giant's hand. A wedding party passes, and the limousine slows. She sees that the turbaned groom, on his way to meet his wife, is not young and eager, but wisp-haired, cold and parched. She imagines a tale of undying love, long denied by circumstance, overcoming adversity at last. Somewhere, an elderly sweetheart awaits her wizened amour. They've loved each other always, she imagines, and now near their story's conclusion, they've found this happy ending. By accident, she speaks these words aloud. Mr. Maharaj smiles and shakes his head. The bridegroom's bride is young, a virgin from a distant village. Why would a pretty young girl wish to marry an old fool? Mr. Maharaj shrugs. The old fellow will have settled for a small dowry, he replies, and if one has many daughters, such as factors, have much weight. As for the oldster, he adds, in a long life, there may be more than a single dowry. These things add up. Flutes and horns blow raucous music in their direction. A drum crumps like cannon fire. Transsexual dancers heckle her through the window. Oh, hey, American, they screech. Oh, hey, howdy, partner, they say, what? Okay, you take care now. I'm a Yankee Doodle dandy. Ooh, baby, wah-wah, maximum cool, Miss America. Shake that thing. She feels a sudden panic. Drive faster, she cries, and the driver accelerates. Dust explodes around the wedding party, hiding it from view. Mr. Maharaj is solicitude personified, but she is angry with herself. Excuse me, she mutters. It's nothing. The heat. America. Once upon a time in America, they had shared an Indian lunch 300 feet above street level at a table with a view of the vernal lushness of the park, feasting their eyes upon an opulence of vegetation that now, as she remembers it in this des desiccated landscape, feels obscene. My country is just like yours, he'd said, flirting, big, turbulent, and full of gods. We speak our kind of bad English, and you speak yours. And before you became Romans, when you were just colonials, our masters were the same. You defeated them before we did. So now you have more money than we do. Otherwise, we're the same. Under street corners, the same bustle of differences, the same litter, the same everything at oneness. She guessed immediately what he was telling her, that he came from a place unlike anything she'd ever experienced, whose languages she would struggle to master, whose codes she might never break, and whose immensity and mystery would provoke and fulfill her greatest passion and her deepest need. Because she was an American, he spoke to her of money, the old protectionist legislation, the outdated socialism that had hobbled the economy for so long had been dismantled, and there were fortunes to be made if you had the ideas. Even a prince had to be on the ball, one step ahead of the game. He was bursting with projects, and she had a reputation in financial circles as a person who could bring together capital and ideas, who could conjure up for her favorite projects the monetary nourishment 
that they required, a rainmaker. She took him to the opera, was aroused as always by the power of great matters sung of in words she could not understand, whose meaning had to be inferred from the performer's deeds. Then she took him home and seduced him. It was her city, her stage, and she was confident and young. As they began to make love, she guessed that she was about to leave behind everything she knew, all the roots of herself. Her lovemaking became ferocious as if his body were a locked gateway to the unknown and she must batter it down. Not everything will be wonderful, he warned her. There's a terrible drought. His palace, unfortunately, is abominable. It crumbles, stinks. In a room, the curtains are tattered, the bed precarious, the pictures on the wall, pornographic representations of arabesque couplings at some petty princeling's court. No way of knowing if these are her husband's ancestors or a job lot purchased from a persuasive peddler. Loud music plays in ill-lit corridors, but she cannot find its source. Shadows scurry from her sight. He installs her, vanishes without an explanation. She is left to make herself at home. That night, she sleeps alone. A ceiling fan stirs the hot, syrupy air. It simmers like a soup. She cannot sip thinking of home, its nocturnal sirens, its cooling machinery, its reification of the real. Amid that surplus of structures of content, it is not easy for the phantasmagoric to gain the upper hand. Our entertainment is full of monsters of the fabulous, because outside the darkened cinemas, beyond the pages of the books, away from the gothic decibels of the music, the quotidian is inescapable, omnipotent. We dream of other dimensions, of paranoid subtexts, of underworlds, because when we awake, the actual holds us in its great thingy grasp, and we cannot see beyond the material, the event horizon. Whereas here, caught in the empty bubbling of dry air, afraid of roaches, all your frontiers may crumble, are crumbling. The possibility of the terrible is renewed. She has never found it easy to weep, but her body convulses. She cries dry tears and sleeps. When she awakes, there's the sound of a drum and dancers. In the courtyard, the women and girls are gathered young and old. The drummer beats out a rhythm and the ladies respond in unison. Their knees bent outward, their splay-fingered hands semaphoring at the ends of peremptory arms, their necks making impossible lateral shifts, eyes ablaze, they advance across cool stone like a syncopated army. It is still early and the courtyard is in the shadow. The sun has not yet lent the stone its fire. At the dancer's head, tallest of them all, fiercely erect, showing them how, is Mr. Maharaj's sister, over 60 years old, but still the greatest dancer in the state. Miss Maharaj has seen the newcomer, but makes no acknowledgement. She is the mistress of the dance. Movement is all. When it's finished, they face each other. Mr. Maharaj's women, the sister, the American. What are you doing? A dance against the firebird. A preparatory dance to ward it off. The firebird. She thinks of Stravinsky of Lincoln Center. Miss Maharaj inclines her head. The bird which never sings, she says, whose nest is secret whose malevolent wings brush women's bodies, and we burn. But surely there is no such bird. It's just an old wives' tale. Here there are no old wives' tales. Alas, there are no old wives. Enter Mr. Maharaj. Turbaned with an embroidered cloth flung about his broad shoulders, how handsome, how manly, how winsomely apologetic. She finds herself behaving petulantly, like a woman from another age. He woos and controls. He went to prepare her wedding welcome. He hopes she will approve. What is it? Wait and see. In the semi-desert beyond his stinking palace, Mr. Maharaj has prepared an extravaganza. By moonlight beneath hot stars on great carpets from Isfahan and Shiraz, a great gathering of dignitaries and nobles welcomes her. The finest musicians play their mournful, haunting flutes, their ecstatic strings, and sing the most ancient and freshest love songs ever heard. The most succulent delicacies of the region are offered for her delight. She's already famous in the neighborhood, a great celebrity. I invited your husband to visit us, the governor of an adjacent state guffaws, but I told him, if you don't bring your beautiful lady, don't bother to show up. A neighboring ex-prince offers to show her the art treasures locked in his palace vaults. I take them out for nobody, he says, except Mrs. Onassis, of course. For you, I will spread them in my garden, as I did for Jackie O. While the moonlight lasts, there are camel races and horse races, dancing and song. Fireworks burst over their heads. She leans against Mr. Maharaj, his absence long forgiven, as whispers, you have made a magic kingdom for me. Or, she teases him, 
is this is how you relax every night. She feels him stiffen, smells the bitterness leaking from her words. It is you who have made this happen, he replies. In this ruined palace, you've conjured the solution. The camels, the horses, even the food has been brought from far away. We impoverish ourselves to make you happy. How can you imagine that we are able to live like this? We protect the last fragments of what we had, and now, to please you, we plunge deeper into debt. We dream only of survival. This Arabian night is an American dream. I ask for nothing, she said. This conspicuous consumption is not my fault. Your accusation, your diatribe, is offensive. He's had too much to drink and has made him truthful. It's our obedience, he tells us, at the feet of power. Rainmaker, bring us rain. Money, you mean. What else? Is there anything else? I thought there was love, she says. The full moon has never looked more beautiful. No music has ever sounded lovelier. No night has ever felt so cruel. She says, I have something to tell you. She is pregnant. She dreams of burning bridges, of burning boats. She dreams of a movie she has always loved in which a man returns to his ancestral village and somehow slips through time to the time of his father's youth. When he tries to flee the village and returns to the railway station, the tracks have disappeared. There's no way home. This is where the film ends. When she wakes from her dream in her sweltering room, the sheets are soaked and there's a woman sitting at her bedside. She gathers a wet sheet around her nakedness. Miss Maharaj smiles, shrugs. You have a strong body, she says. Younger, but in other ways, not so unlike mine. I would have left him. Now I just don't know. Miss Maharaj shakes her head. In the village, they say it will be a boy, she explains. And then the drought will break. Just superstition. But he can't let you leave. And afterwards, if you go, he'll keep the child. We'll see about that, she blasts. When she is agitated, her tones become nasal, unattractive even to herself. In her mind's eye, the story is closing around her, the story in which she is trapped, in which she must, if she can, find the path of action, preferably of right action, but if not, then of wrong. What cannot be tolerated is inertia. She will not fall into some tame and heated heat day's swoon. Romance has led her into errors enough. Now she will use her head. Slowly as the weeks unfold, she begins to see. He does not own the casino in his palace in the city, has signed a foolish contract, letting it, letting it to a consortium of alarming men. The rent they pay him is absurd and is stipulated in the small print on that certain high days each year he must hang around the gaming tables, grinning ingratiatingly at the guests, lending a tone. The satellite di dish franchises are more lucrative, but this greedy old wreck of a country residence needs to eat off far richer platters if it's to be properly fed. The rural palace is ageless, perhaps 600 years. Most of it lacks electricity, windows, furniture. Cold in the cold season, hot in the heat, and if the rains should come, many of its staterooms would flood. All they have here is water, the inexhaustible palace spring. At the back of the palace, past the ruined zones, where the bats hold sway, she picks her way through accumulated guano and sees a line form before dawn. The villagers, rendered indigent, indigent by the drought, come under cover of darkness, hiding their humiliation, filling their supplicant pitchers. Behind the line of the thirsty, there stands, like a haunting, the high black shadow of a crenellated wall. A village woman, with a few unaccountable words of English, explains that this charred fortress was, in former days, the larger part of the prince's residence. Great treasures were lost when it burned also lives, also lives. When did this happen? In before time. She begins to understand his bitterness. Another princess, Miss Maharaj, tells her, a dowager even more destitute than we recently ended her life by drinking fire. She crushed her heirloom diamonds in a cup and gulped them down. So Mr. Maharaj, visiting America, had turned himself into an illusion of sophistication and innovation had won her with a desperate performance. He has learned to talk like a modern man, but in truth is helpless in the face of the present. The drought, his unworldliness, the decision of history to turn away her face, these things are his undoing. In Greece, the athlete who won the Olympic race became a person of high rank in his home city. Mr. Maharaj, however, rots, as does his house. Her own room begins to look like luxury's acme. Glass in the windows, the slow-turning electric fan. A telephone with sometimes a dial tone. 
a socket for a laptop's power line, the intermittent possibility of forging a modern link with that other planet, her earlier life. He has not taken her to his own room because he's ashamed of it. Sensing the life growing inside her, she wants to forgive its father to help him out of the past into that flowing, metamorphic present that has been her real life. She will do what she can do. She is America and brings the rain. Again and again, she wakes, sweating naked with Miss Maharaj murmuring at her side. Yes, a fine body. It could have been a dancer's. It will burn well. Don't touch me. She is alarmed. All brides in these parts are brought from far afield. And once the men have spent their dowries, then the firebird comes. Don't threaten me. Perplexed. Do you know how many brides he has had? Terrified, raging, bewildered, she confronts him. Is it true? Is that why your sister has never married? Why she gathers under her roof to protect them all? All the spinsters of the village, young and old? That interminable dance class of lifetime virgins, too frightened to take a husband? Is it true you burn your brides? Ah, my mad sister has been whispering to you, he laughs. She came to your room at night. She caressed your body. She spoke of water and fire, of women's beauty, and the secret lethal nature of men. She told you about the magic bird, I suppose, the bird of death. No, she remembers carefully. The one who first named the firebird was you. Mr. Maharaj, in a fury, brings her to his sister's dance class. Seeing him, the dancers stumble, their bell-braceleted feet lose the rhythm and come jangling to a halt. Why are you here, he asks them, raging. Tell my bride why you've come. Are you refugees or students? Sir, students, are you here because you're afraid? Oh, please, sir, we are not afraid. His inquisition is relentless, bellowing, and all the while his eyes never leave his sisters. Miss Maharaj stands tall and silent. The last question is for her. How many brides have I had? How many do you say? They are locked in each other's power, brother and sister, each other's eternal prisoner, outside history, beyond time. Miss Maharaj is the first to drop her eyes. She's the first, she says. It's over. He turns to face his bride and spread his ar- spreads his arms. You heard it with your own ear. Let's have no more fables. The heat is maddening. Skeletal bullocks die on the brown lawn. Some days there are mustard yellow clouds filling the sky, hanging over the evaporating marshes to the west. Even this hideous yellow rain would be welcome, but it does not fall. Everyone has bad breath. All exhale serpents, dead cats, insects, fogs. Everyone's perspiration is thick and stinks. In spite of all her resolutions, the heat hypnotizes her. The child grows. Miss Maharaj's dancers become careless about closing doors and windows. They are to be glimpsed here and there, painting one another's bodies in hot colors and wild designs, making love, sleeping with limbs entwined. Mr. Maharaj does not come to her, will not while she is caring. But each night, Miss Maharaj comes. Since her brother's descent upon her dance class, Miss Maharaj has barely spoken. At night, she asks only to sit at the bedside, sometimes almost primly to touch. This Mr. Maharaj's American bride allows. Her health fails. She begins to sweat, to shiver from a fever. Her shit is like thin mud. Only the palace springs save her from dehydration and swift death. Miss Maharaj nurses her, brings her salt. The only physician hereabouts is an old fellow, out of touch, useless. Both women know the baby is at risk. During these long, sick nights, quietly, absently, the sexagenarian dancer talks. Something frightful has happened here, some irreversible transformation. Without our noticing its beginnings so that we did not resist until it was too late, until the new way of things was fixed, there has occurred a terrible terminal rupture between our men and women. When men say they fear the absence of rain, when women say we fear the presence of fire, this is what we mean. Something has been unleashed in us. It's too late to tame it now. Once upon a time, there was a great prince here, the last prince, one could say. Everything about him was gigantic, mythological, the most handsome prince in the world, he married the most beautiful bride, a legendary dancer and temptress, and they had two children, a girl and a boy. As he aged, his strength ebbed, his eye dimmed, but she, the dancer, refused to fade. At the age of 50, she had the look of a young woman of 21. As the prince's force faded, as that glamour, which had been the heart of his power, ceased to work its magic, so his jealousy increased. Miss Maharaj shrugged, moved quickly to the story's end. The fortress burned. They both died. He had suspected his wife of taking lovers, 
but there had been none. The children, who had been left in care of servants, lived. The daughter became a dancer, and the son a sportsman, and so on. The villagers said that the old prince, consumed by rage, had been transformed into a giant bird, a bird composed entirely of flames. And that was the bird that burned the princess, and returns these days to turn other women to ashes at their husband's cruel command. And you asked the old woman on the bed, what do you say? Do not condescend to us in your heart, Miss Maharaja replies. Do not mistake the abnormal for the untrue. We are caught in metaphors. They transfigure us and reveal the meaning of our lives. The illness recedes and the baby seems also to be well. The return of health is like a certain being lifted. She is thinking like herself again. She will keep the child, but she will no longer be trapped in this place of fantasies with a man she finds she does not know. She will go to the city, fly back to America, and after the child is born, what will be, will be. She has no desire to prevent the father from seeing his child. Extremely free access, including trips east, will be granted. She wants that, wants the child to know both cultures. Enough! Time to behave like an adult. She may even continue to advise Mr. Maharaj on his financial needs. Why not? It's her job. She tells Mr. Ms. Maharaj her decision, and the old dancer winces, as if from a blow. In the dead of night, the American is wakened by a hubbub in the palace, in its corridors and courtyard. She dresses, goes outside. A scratch armada of motor vehicles is assembled. A rusty bus, several motor scooters, a newish Japanese people carrier, an open trunk, a jeep and camouflage. Miss Maharaj's women are piling into the vehicles, angry singing. They have taken weapons, the domestic weapons that came to hand, sticks, garden implements, kitchen knives. At their head, revving the jeep, shouting impatiently at her troops is Miss Maharaj. What's going on? None of your business. You don't believe in fairies. You're going home. I'm coming with you. Miss Maharaj treats the jeep roughly, driving it at speed over broken ground without lights. The motley convoy jolts along behind. They drive by the light of a molten full moon. Ahead of them stands a ruined stone arch, an entrance to nothing besides a fallen tree. The armada halts, turns on its lights. The dance class pours through the archway as if it were the only possible entrance to the open waste ground beyond, as if it were a portal to another world. When she, the American, does likewise, she has that feeling again of passing through an invisible membrane, a looking glass into another kind of truth, into fiction. A tableau illuminated by the lights of motor vehicles. Remember the old bridegroom on his way to meet his young imported bride? Here he is again, guilty, murderous, and his young wife, uncomprehending, at his side. In the background, silhouetted, are the figures of male villagers. Facing the unhappy couple is Mr. Maharaj. The women burst shrieking upon the charmless scene, then come raggedly to a halt, intimidated by Mr. Maharaj's presence. The sister faces the brother. Somebody has left their lights flashing. The siblings' faces glow white, yellow, red in the headlights. They speak in a language the American cannot understand. It is an opera without supertitles. She must infer what they are saying from their actions, from their thoughts made deeds. And so, as clearly as if she comprehended every syllable, she hears Miss Maharaj command her brother, what started between our parents stops now. And her response, a response that has no meaning in the world beyond the ruined archway, which he speaks as his body turns to fire, as the wings burst out of him, as his eyes blaze. His words hang in the air as the firebird's breath scorches Miss Maharaj, burns her to a center, and then turns upon the daughter's shrieking bride. I am the firebird's nest. Something loosens within her as she sees Miss Maharaj burn. Some shackle is broken, some limit of possibility passed. Unleashed, she crashes upon Mr. Maharaj like a wave, and the angry dancers pour behind her, seething, irresistible. She feels the frontiers of her body burst, and the waters pour out, the immense crushing weight of her rain, drowning the firebird in its nest, flowing over the drought-hardened land that no longer knows how to absorb it, carrying away the old dotard and its murderous fellows, cleansing the region of its horrors, its archaic tragedies of life. The death toll is still rising in the former principality after last night's unexpected drought-breaking downpour that caused a widespread flooding in the area. It is feared that the former prince, Mr. A. Maharaj, and his sister, a celebrated classical dancer, are among the dead. 
However, an American woman, Ms. Maharaj Fancy, is confirmed as being among the survivors. Now she is flying home, and the ocean is below her. The universe has resumed its familiar shape, but her own shape has changed. Mr. Maharaj's child will be born in America. She caresses her swelling womb. Increasing, she is both fire and rain. Thanks, Alvin. Well, there's, there's a lot there. There's, there's so much going on. Uh, obviously, we probably won't get to talk about all of it. Before we get into some of the details of the story, let's have that discussion about choice and character choice and so on. So I know that one of the things you're interested in is sort of critical misperception, uh, is perceptions about choice. You've noted that critics of fiction tend to think about character arcs and even whole plots in terms of a spatialized view of choices characters make, rather than taking a more temporal view of this choice, that choice. So, for example, critics of Jane Austen's Emma sometimes talk about Emma choosing among Mr. Elton, Frank Churchill, and Mr. Knightley, when the novel never puts Emma in a position where such a choice is available to her. So perhaps you could start there, talking about why even smart critics would talk that way, and how you'd prefer that we talk about characters' choices. Yeah, so the contemporary moment is one where we think about choices as there are millions of things we can choose from. Mm -hmm. All of them are available to us theoretically simultaneously, right? She actually, in, in, in The Firebird's Nest, there's this kind of moment where, you know, in contemporary America is kind of portrayed as all at once-ness, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people talk about, you know, in contemporary life that, that this is a problem of the modern world that's been both enabled, it's also like a wonderful thing about the modern world, we mm -hmm. can choose all, all, all kinds of stuff. But one way to think about it is that choices and decision making is in some ways about value, what you value over right. another thing. Yep. Uh -huh. And one issue is that, you know, in the contemporary moment, we can value all kinds of different things all at the same time. So, and we import this kind of idea of, well, you know, I can choose between, you know, having a hamburger or going to the gym or watching TV because all of them are available to us. Yeah, right. And it's only up, up to us to mm -hmm. figure out our own value system on, on what they're based on. And we import that onto novels where it mm -hmm. actually doesn't really work that way. You know, it's not like there are simul, it's not like Austin represents in Emma a world of many different value systems where Emma mm -hmm. can, you know, mm -hmm. choose to break social rules, marry Mr. Elton, even though it's beneath her, you know, go against her own sense of, you know, what love is and and mm -hmm. and, and marry Churchill. Values are not so many and disparate. And more importantly, they're not just up to the individual to figure out in these previous okay. ways. Yeah. And therefore, choice doesn't have this kind of expansive, everything mm -hmm. all at once kind of mode. It actually happens kind of serially, you know, right. one after right. another, where people kind of consult their the, the, some value system, decide one thing and then another. But we are so used to thinking about decisions yeah, as yeah, open yeah. that we think even novels that don't show people deciding upon yeah, yeah, many I different see. value yeah. systems, right. we think that, that, that that's what's happening, right, and it's right. not. Yeah, so just to maybe tease out that a little bit more, I hear you sort of saying two things. One, the big one, right, I was like, so we import our sense of choice onto narratives. But also those narratives, there's two things going on. One is that the choices are more serial, and the other is that the choices aren't so much up to the individual. There's, there's all these other kinds of constraints, right? So I guess another thing that would be connected, right, so to take your example of, you know, going to the gym, having a hamburger, watching TV, I think another dimension of that would be, okay, on, you know, Tuesday, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have the hamburger, but on Wednesday, I'll watch TV, <laughs> on Thursday, I'll go to the gym, and that somehow there, there's not a fixed hierarchy of our values, right, that we can... We can shift our values from day to day if we want, right? But you would suggest that in lots of novels, that's really not an option for characters. Is that 
that th- makes sense? Th- that's right. It becomes more of an option as we get further into the 19th century and, you know, into the contemporary age. So when we get to Henry James's Portrait of a Lady, yeah. you know, there's a kind of famous moment of like, do you want to know everything, even things you're not supposed to do? Mm-hmm. And she says, well, and, and, and she says, I do want to know about them. And then someone asks, like, so that you can do them. And she says, well, I'd like, so as to choose, you yeah, know, like, right, and, right, and, and right, there's yeah. this kind of sense of like, all right, I want to kind of make up my own yeah. values and, and follow them. That is not exactly what Emma is doing. And it's certainly not mm-hmm. what Elizabeth Bennet right. is doing. And they, and they would not recognize some kind of idea of just like, well, I just like the idea of choosing, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, as yeah, opposed yeah, right, to right. kind of following right. a, a, yeah. at least – you know, even if it's a changing, evolving, flexible sense of value systems. Nonetheless, I think, you know, Jane Austen takes some kind of structured value systems mm-hmm. very seriously. And so the name of my, you know, future monograph is called Preference. It's this kind of uh-huh. move from towards a very individualized sense of right. value that, okay. that then allows choice to be represented in just this kind of very expansive kind mm-hmm. of endless way. Right, right. So in a, in a sense, you're, it sounds like you're interested in, in kind of writing a history of the novel focused on preference in that way so that we and, – and also then to sort of differentiate, right, periods when preference is strongly constrained and then a gradual movement into the contemporary period where it's much less strongly constrained. Is that – is that fair? Or is that too too simple? Well, I would I would just object to the idea that preference is constrained. Like I just think it it it's not envisioned in that way. Okay. That, that okay. is preference yeah, is good. a okay. another way to put this is is one of the major issues in self help right now mm-hmm. is actually what's called the paradox of choice, right? Yeah. Which is that the more choices you have, the less you're able to kind of figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that the paralysis of choice. Paradox the, is that it leads to paralysis, yeah, right? Yes, yeah, paralysis. Yeah. Well, the paradox is that you want more choice. Yeah. But the more choice you have, yeah. the less able you are to actually act. Yeah, so, okay. so you right. actually, um, or what this one psychologist called the tyranny of freedom. That's the kind of yeah. paradox, right? Right, right? And part of what, you know, the reason why I say, like, it's not that preference is constrained, because, like, really what we get with preference is, is you know, this kind of way that we mix all kinds of different value systems that don't actually, they're not commensurable. Uh-huh. Okay. So if you're like, should I, you know, enjoy a novel or should I, you know, go to the gym? In a way, they're not really, uh-huh. you can't really measure the, them on the, the same, same yardstick. Yeah. Right. So the the if we thought that preference was constrained, we would think like, well, there are many yardsticks in mm-hmm. Jane Austen, and Jane Austen has kind of acknowledged them and says like, okay, that's not you know, but I don't care. I think we go from a world where there's not really an imagination of a million different yardsticks, a million different systems yeah. value, okay. to a world which there are many systems of of evaluation, it's up to the individual to kind of figure it out. And it becomes both, you know, liberating and kind of terrifying. So mm. like in Henry James, again, you see a lot yeah. of people not doing much of, any, of anything. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. right. Well, they're thinking, right? They're, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're, they're thinking. thinking, right. So, I mean, that's another, I think, maybe, you know, potential feature and, and sort of, you know, one of the things that's striking about the Rushdie is that you know, compared to Henry James, right? So in Henry James, we get so much, you know, representation of consciousness, internal thoughts, reflections, uh, et cetera, right? And, you know, and that it's not just James, right? And, or you could say James and then James's influence, right? This becomes a feature of certainly 20th century fiction and sort of continues, you know. But in a way, the fiber's nest sort of is striking because we don't get much of that, right? It's, it's, it seems like a different kind of thing. So, you know, that, that raises a couple of questions. I think one is about, you know, the sort of the arc and a, maybe a pushback. You know, we get to a certain point of we've exhausted this kind of, you know, exploration of in, individual consciousness. So that would be one dimension of it. But the other dimension, of course, would be genre, right? That certain kinds of genres lend themselves to the exploration of individual consciousness and reflection and choice, and others don't, right? So, you know, maybe just some thoughts about about those two things, the the historical development and then the genre dimension. Yeah. So I think they're related, and I would add one more, which is the kind of post-colonial. And, and, yeah, and, sure. and one way I could kind of get to Firebird's Nest is 
sometimes the language that we talk about the post-colonial condition is one of confusion of many different yardsticks of, mm -hmm. of, of an integration or an opposition or a confusion of different systems of value where, you know, again, in the, in the film, every, there's everything everywhere all, all at once. once. Or, you know, in TV shows, there's a, there's a kind of sense of like, you know, the confused immigrant child being able, not knowing which yardstick to, you know, which thing to choose because there's so many different ideas. So, so one thing about, that's interesting about Rushdie is he's clearly very interested in the mixing of cultures mm -hmm. and mixing of values. Right. But he also resists having what would be a very paradigmatic kind of, you know, culturally confused moment of like, well, should I do this? I'm confronted mm -hmm. by this kind of idea. And and what does this mean? I mean, the, the American bride is confronted with this, but but there's very little moments where she is like, you know, mm -hmm. sh should I go with this idea? Should I go with that? Should I, you know, whatever, subsume myself to Indian culture, you mm -hmm. know? And, and so one of the things that I think is fascinating about Rushdie generally is he takes on the topic of kind of cultural mixing, the mixing of values mm -hmm. of individualism, Western individualism, its relationship to the past of fables, of, mm -hmm. of myths, you know. And he, in a way, refuses that what could be a temptation and was often a temptation for other postcolonial writers to think about multiple, you know, this kind of grand multiplicity of possibilities and mm -hmm. ideas. And instead, he writes something that he's self-conscious about. He mentions fables. He mentions myths. Right, he, right. He, he mentions this kind of like sense of this is an age-old place and, and an age-old pattern. And he also takes on, just if I can go on a little bit of a riff, also the kind of historical dimension. You know, he's, he's clearly thinking about one of the – one great controversy in – Kind of the historiography of the of the colonies, the the practice of sati, the the mm -hmm. wives of once their once their husbands dies, widows are supposed to throw themselves on the fire and yeah, self immolate. Right, right, yeah. And this, for those of the audience, are into literary criticism and literary theory. Gayatri Spivak, one of the great postcolonial critics, in one of the classic texts, "Can the Subaltern Speak?" The entire last section of it is about different ways of thinking about Sadi. Uh -huh, and and right. she actually says, you know, there's a bunch of different ways to think about it. One is, and this is what she says, one is that the, that the colonists often thought of themselves, the white colonists, of saving white women, I mean, I mean brown women mm -hmm, from right. brown men. Right. And 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 so it was this kind of like white savior kind right, of idea. Right. Mm -hmm. and And, but then the Hindu men would often say, well, the women want it. The women mm -hmm. wanted to die, this is, is the way she put it, puts it. So he's, you know, commenting on this, you know, in some ways going through the same idea that it is the American female who comes, saves everyone, yeah. you know, yeah, from yeah, the practice yeah. of sati, reverses the gender, kind of keeps the, the, the white savior kind of thing, but does it all with a kind of flatness, you know, like, like a kind of refusal yeah. of internal deliberation. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it takes on the, the kind of flavor of fable and myth, yeah, even though right. he yeah. seems to want to defamiliarize ourselves with it. Yeah. And I think that's, I, I can, should I say more about that or should yeah, I? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think you already start to, you know, make a good transition to, to some of the details of the story. But maybe before we go further there, the one other, you know, sort of question about choice is the, is the way in which we can think about choices sort of at different levels of narrative, right? So obviously we've been focusing primarily on character choices, but then there's also, you know, choices about how to tell the story, right? And and we depending on how an author uses a narrator, we could say, well, sometimes we'll get a narrator making choice either implicitly or explicitly, and and then we could also think about, you know, Authors making choices, right? So you, you are saying in a way, you know, Rushdie, you know, refuses uh, to do certain kinds of things, right? Well, like you know, I might say, well, that's a choice, right? So, so we don't at the so you could say at the authorial level, we're still to some degree at least, you know, interested in uh, authorial choice. Is that 
How does that play into your whole way of thinking about these yeah, issues? Yeah, you know, it's and it's it's really interesting because I mean, you can tell he he has all kinds of. I think he may have even read Spivex, you know, like yeah, like uh, like work. Right. I mean, he's got all kinds of things, and he knows that he can take all these different you know ways into it. I think it's. You know, I don't know about Rushdie, but there is this kind of – I do know about Dickens. And yeah, Dickens okay. would often – Dickens has, to me, a same kind of mode of, of – he reluctantly describes consciousness, you know, and a lot of his characters are flat. And he often talks about his writing process as steam-powered, as if he's like some kind of machine mm -hmm. and he just like does it. I think Rushdie is more thoughtful, but there is this kind of sense of Rushdie of like – you know, people are trying to kill him, you know, and he's just yeah. like, I'm, I, I don't care. I'm just going to keep on going, you know, yeah, like, like, uh, yeah. and, and it, 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 that, that energy, the, the kind of like energy of his sentences, yeah. it doesn't foreground that sense of right. I'm making choices, you know, right. like, like the feel of it is a kind of irresistible force, very much like mm. the firebird and the, the water, you know, the water. The water. Yeah. And it, it's very distinctive, you know, and, and if you pick up children, which yeah. is, you know, yeah. my favorite thing. So actually, the, the the novel begins with a first person narrator right. who's been born at the moment of mm. of Indians' independence, right. and he actually says, "This is a quote: because thanks to the occult tyrannies of the blandly saluting clocks, I have been mysteriously handcuffed to history. My destiny is indissolubly chained to those of my country. For the next three decades, there was to be no escape. So mm. at least on the narrator's kind of sense." Yeah. It's not, there's really like like a sense of like history is destiny and 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 yeah. I can't resist this kind of thing and I yeah. really feel like that's part of the vibe one gets of, of yeah. Rushdie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right, great. So if we go back to the story, right? Maybe just push back slightly, right, on the idea of the American bride and her choosing, you know, her choosing to do X or Y or not, right? I mean, I think in general terms, what you say, you know, rings, rings true, true, right? right? But, but but we do get these things like, you know, when she said, now that she's pregnant, right? Well, I'm not sure whether I should go or stay, you know, that kind of thing. I was ready to go, but now that I, I know I'm pregnant, maybe I'm going to stay. Right. So is that, what do you, how does that figure into your, your analysis? I mean, yes, there are those moments, right? I mean, yeah. one thing that, that, that one kind of has to, focus on is that she's not named. I mean, like she's right. the American bride, right? right? right. Absolutely, know? right. Even we Mr. get Mr. Maharaj. Even right. Mr. Maharaj, right, which yeah. is just like Supreme King. King. You know, right, like, right, like right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, really... It's a thematic name, right? Yeah, these yeah. kind of thematic names. And and so one feels like she represents a kind of individualism, an American uh, individualism. Yeah. But she's so overdetermined by history, like like uh -huh. you know both the history of where she's at, but then we also find out that she's supposedly the the daughter, you know, the daughter of these you know ancient you know maybe European monarchs and and the subject of gossip. That that the that that feeling like in Midnight's Children of being kind of you know linked to mm -hmm. these historical trends, you know, yeah, of, yeah. of the American and the Indian feels more vital to whatever is happening in the story than any sense of what's at stake is an individual set of preferences, right? You yeah. know, like in, in a mm -hmm. way, it's even like the eating and stuff like that, where it's just like these mountains of food that come out at you. Like there's no sense of like, well, do I want this or do I want yeah, that? Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. the kind of consumption happens on this like way of 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 there's 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 very little sense of I've got a yardstick. I can we can mm -hmm. see the different yardsticks, you know, yeah. by which she's evaluating things. So it is there, but it's but but it's kind of teasingly there, you know. Yeah, and uh -huh, and yeah. again, I I don't want to make a like these these different versions of choice do kind of appear even in very different genres where one's not where one's dominant, but there's yeah. a subordinate kind of part yeah, of it. I yeah, do think yeah. that's subordinated, but I think the, the yeah. subordination is kind of striking to me. Yeah, okay, good, good. Yeah, maybe we talk just a little bit more about genre because, I mean, I think it, you know, we could say it's a mixing genres. And there are these elements of, you know, the, the fable and the myth. I mean, the firebird, obviously, is a whole carries a whole, you know, tradition of, of myth. But then there are all these other kinds of details that we might think of as, you know, sort of quasi-realistic anyway. I mean, you know, they, they go to the opera, there's, you know, this, that, and the other. I mean, 
how do you how do you sort of sort the the genre mixing that that seems to be you know Rushdie's you know mode here? Yeah, now it's I mean it's confusing in that in that way that kind of postmodernism is a little confusing, mm-hmm. right? Because even the the moments of realism are people being transfixed by different kind of narratives of like mm. going to the opera. She's like, and, and the yeah. arias or the insects and, 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 you know, she's often actually says like, I'm entranced by these fables and, and Rushdie often yeah. like has this like sense of like, this is the problem. If you, if you think fire, if you believe the, 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 the way of language that it's read, you don't quite understand. You've been entranced by language too. Yeah. And, you know, the, the the realism, and also there's the issue of magical realism, which has a whole kind of, you know, history of, of the, the you know, whatever the, 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 you know, whatever they used to call the developing world, you know, like, mm-hmm. like, but, but I, I do think that arm's length, like that kind of realism where, where there's a kind of self-consciousness by which people are seduced by tales, by stories, by stories they don't quite understand, right? Yeah, because that's yeah. her whole thing about the opera. She's like, she needs the super titles, and she's actually like, yeah. she likes the fact that yeah. she doesn't actually understand the language. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about that thing, you know, and which is also the seductiveness of the other, right? You know, of, of not understanding. It, it is a both a longing for and and a fact of not being able to choose, you know, like yeah. like because you don't actually understand what's happening and you don't understand the story that you're in. Yeah. And therefore, you're not so much constrained like the narrator of Nice Children in this kind of national story that you're kind of part of, but actually in someone else's story, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. or stories that that are out there. And that's certainly the case. Like, like she comes in and there's this long story of the firebird and the brides, and we don't quite know whether it's true or false or right. a story right. and what if, what what's the kind of truth value of the story, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. And then she becomes a character in this legend, you know? Like, yeah, like, right, and, right. And, and she becomes conscious of that, right? So, I mean, and that happens at least twice, right, where, where you know, she's aware of – sort of this, or she has this feeling that she's moving into a fiction, and he says that one time, right? So that that's really interesting at the character level, but it's also interesting at the reader level, right? Because it's like, okay, well, you know, are, are, we, are we shifting, you know, generic frames as she feels this, this shift? I mean, comment on that? I mean, I think we are shifting generic frames in the sense that we— <laughs> that w- that is being what is being called attention to is the fact that when you shift generic frames, you're shifting from one genre to another as opposed to some kind of idea of individual like yeah. like 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 option making, you know like yeah, yeah. like like yeah. I think in the shifting of genres, you know he's very he constantly tells us about these conventions of of, yeah. of different genres. and you know, I think part of what he's saying is like there's no world outside of convention. and in some ways okay. that's that's okay. a now an obvious thing that that we all yeah. learn, you know, in, in yeah. our first year of graduate school, like there's no out, yeah. you know, right. out there outside of language. But it is a very different idea than saying, you know, you've got a choice. Yeah. You can yeah. you can do this, you can do that, you can yeah. break out of the genre, like, yeah. but yeah. she can't, you know, she right. she right. actually yeah. becomes the main character in the yeah. in the legend. And she does it kind of against her will. She feels right. herself you know, bursting and the water just comes out of her and right. not quite clear that she knows what's happening. Right, right. Yeah, and I think too then, you know, we should we should pay some attention to sort of the, the cross-cultural thing and sort of the politics of that, right, and how, how you know, he's doing this genre mix in, in relationship to something that's obviously, you know, sort of, politically relevant outside of, you know, the firebirds and that's outside of the fiction. So, I mean, there's some obvious things like, so the, you know, there's this very strong, you know, gender binaries here, right? And, you know, women die one way, men die another way. We have the drought as the, you know, the dominant in- instability, right? How, what's going to happen with the drought? And, you know, that's driving so much of what happens, you know, so what, and then, of course, we have we have water and fire, and you know, rain and and so on. So, how do you see these things mapping onto some kind of a, you know, a political dimension of the of the story? Yeah. So I, I'll say a couple of things. For one thing, I think one of the things that 
Rushdie is interested in is precisely the way the post-colonial condition isn't up in, to individuals. It is this mm-hmm. kind of gigantic set of forces that, you know, I feel like in a way what he's saying, and he's kind of saying it in the same way with the narrator of Midnight's Children, is like, if you think whatever is happening between cultures and economies and wars is up to you, you know, like like you fundamentally <laughs> mistaken something. Uh-huh, like uh-huh. And and this is again, you know, a longstanding kind of Marxist critique of 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 certain kinds of literature, especially kind of modernist literature, yeah, yeah. where everything becomes a matter of consciousness, yeah, of individual yeah, consciousness, yeah, yeah. and that's both very tempting. But what again, oh, generations yeah. of critics have said, Same. it's like it really mistakes something really important about politics. Yeah, the very yeah. idea of politics is that. It's not about an individual being like, I'm going to, you know, like appropriate this piece of cultural whatever or not, or yeah. I'm, you know, going to buy this rather than that, like, like, yeah. or I am not going to say this kind of word and say that kind of word. And instead, that that these forces are are way bigger, yeah, and right. and and I think <laughs> this is I I think this is both the power and I think also what gets Rushdie often in trouble, which is th- there seems to be a fine line between saying. What I think, you know, a lot of people might say is is something important to say, which is like it's not up to us. These forces yeah, are really right, big, right. while also then also kind of reinscribing the same, yeah. you know, like like general pattern. I mean, there is this kind of conservatism to the whole, you know, gender binary. The fact that the white person kind of saves yeah, the the yeah. Indian thing, whether yeah. he's making fun of it, whether he's, you know, yeah, like yeah, like yeah. I, you know, who knows? I think so. I think that is important. Right. And I think, I mean, just to maybe say, you know, say what's obvious is that that all fits with what he's doing formally, right? I mean, that we're not in, in, the, in you know, spending a lot of time in the consciousness of the American bride or Mr. Maharaj or Miss Maharaj. We're, we're seeing them sort of, you know, the, just the representation of the action and so on is, is pointing to these larger forces. They're, they're being controlled, you know, or directed by so much that goes beyond their individual will or choice or whatever, right? So, so anyway, just I interrupted you, but just because of it seemed to me like, oh yeah, that's so, you know, that connection seemed really strong at the, in our conversation. So yeah, yeah. And, and and you know, other people have, like again, those of you in the audience who might have read like Eric Auerbach's Mimesis, he talks about the style of yeah. the Old Testament, and he's like, you know. When you know the whole drama of Isaac and Abraham, and you're just like, what are what are any of these people thinking? Like, yeah, like, like, yeah, like, how is yeah. it all working? And and no one tells you that. And part of what Auerbach says, it's like that's right because they're presenting it as the force of God, a force of truth. Yeah, uh-huh. This is the truth, and, and he calls it a tyrannical truth. That's what Auerbach says. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's something like that happening with Rushdie, which is he's actually like, it is a tyranny, you know, like mm-hmm. like this historical force. Is a kind of tyrannical force that that doesn't allow you know us to see individual consciousness because it kind of doesn't matter and yeah, yeah. and it's not part of the drama that that that's yeah, not part of the, uh, the larger truth. It's really going to be consequential. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I I think one other thing, that, you know, again one can debate this, but one one of the things I think is is really interesting is that in a weird way it becomes a more collective vision mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of what fiction can do and what what it means to read, what it means to be, you know, in a, in a way, this world of everyone can make up their own values, make up their own choices, you know, eat a hamburger, you know, watch TV, you know, like it, it, it dissociates us from some kind of idea that, that it's not all up to us, uh-huh, that, that, right, that, yeah, that, yeah. that we should have some kind of standards and some kind of like value systems that are not just our own to make up. And and this is, again, one of the things that, that whatever these psychologists who talk about the tyranny of choice say is that it actually kind of makes us retreat mm-hmm. from the world of consequential ethical yeah. action. You know, I, it's hard f- for us to think about Rushdie maybe as an ethical person because I mean, his politics are, are – are, you know, out there, and I'm not exactly sure with all the genre mixing. Yeah, it's not quite like he's putting forth an absolute ethical system, but I do think that vision of mm-hmm. like it's not all up to us. There are yeah. these gigantic political forces, and like let's be aware of our 
you know, determination by them is can be a kind of call towards a more kind of collective sense yeah, right, of, right, of right. being in yeah, some ways. Yeah, yeah. And then just to pick up on one other point you made there, which is about, you know, the potentials of fiction, right? So, you know, what, what do you make of the fact that, okay, he's choosing this way of, you know, let's say he's issuing this call, right? Well, why why not write an essay, right? Why why write the Firebirds nest and say, what's... What what is what does he gain, or what might we gain by you know, engaging with the fibers this rather than a, an essay about it, this stuff? It's really interesting because, like you know, the other version he kind of talks about is like the fairy tale, you know, yeah. like like and and I often. When I teach the 19th century novel, you know, it really does, like the Firebird's Nest, there is this kind of whole other system, the feudal system of princes and princesses. Mm-hmm. And that is the the world of the fairy tale. Yeah. And kids like fairy tales. And then we grow out of fairy tales, yeah. you know. like. Yeah, yeah. But part of what I think kids like about them is that it suggests a world where it's not all up to us, right? You know, mm-hmm. you, you mm-hmm. become a prince or a king. Not because you've chosen it, but you're just yeah. born into you know, yeah, like right, like right, and yeah. and yeah, that's both, or something. Yeah. Y- yeah, it's both yeah. like really tempting to think about that. There's a sense of like relieves you of a certain kind of responsibility, yeah. but it also like puts you in a system of obligations that are legible, you know, like yeah. and, and yeah. I do actually think by writing it and kind of reminding us of of that kind of fascination with a world in which freedom and maturity actually doesn't actually does has kind of fairy tale sense maybe of a happy ending that's false and all this all the other problems with fairy tales but also of a legible world of of actual values of actual mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. places that we can kind of locate ourselves in in a society which is not an easy thing to do i mean rushy yeah. knows that our post-colonial world this is what's dissolving mm-hmm. but i think there is a kind of nostalgia that is again mm. both Problem, you know, whatever as the kids say, problematic. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, but, yeah. but also in a, in a way, a a kind of reckoning with trying to make us, you know, see the validity and the attraction mm-hmm. to a more structured yeah. world. And and I do think that fairy tale kind of fiction to yeah. get back to it right. reminds us of the appeals of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that may be a good place to end, but let me just ask, are there any final thoughts, things you wanted to get to that we haven't gotten to? No, I think that's a good yeah. understanding. We, we yeah. went somewhere that I did not choose. So, like, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. That's a great place yeah. to end. So, thanks very much, Amon. Right. This is really enjoyable. And I want to thank our listeners and also to remind you that we appreciate your feedback. You can send it to us at Project Narrative at osu.edu. That's our email address. Also on our Facebook page or on our Twitter account, which is at PN Ohio State. I also want to remind you, you can find 13 additional episodes of the podcast at the Project Narrative website. That's projectnarrative.osu.edu or on Apple Podcasts. Thank you all.